Hello there, how are you going? Well, good day. <laughs> good day, <Yeah>. that's it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Welcome to the Publisher Book Podcast, where we speak with authors from around the world to find out how they transform their dream into a published reality. Here's your host, Adam Ashton. Today I got the opportunity to speak with Mr. David Crystal OBE. He's an awesome, awesome dude. He's uh, probably the most world's most famous linguist, uh, which he describes as, I guess, the science of language. So he's been a he was a professor, but and he says he's written like 120, 140 books somewhere around there. He's lost track. Uh, and one of the books we delved into is a book called. English in a hundred words, and he took a hundred words uh, and used those to depict the English language and how the English language came about. It's really interesting stuff. I guess a quick warning: uh, there are he does include because he's encapsulating the whole English language in a hundred words. He does include some taboo words, uh, and his argument is that, uh, which I agree with, is that the words aren't offensive. A string of letters together is not offensive. The context in which they use can be offensive if people choose to use them that way. So there will be some uh, some swear words, some rude words in here. Uh, so I'll mark this episode as explicit, and uh, just be beware that we're not using them offensively. We're just uh, using them to to talk about history and and, and the and linguistics. It was a really interesting convo. Check him out at davidcrystal.com. That's uh, how you'd imagine it to be spelt, I guess. D-A-V-I-D-C-R-Y-S-T-A-L, davidcrystal.com. Enjoy. Well, David Crystal, well, I was uh, brought up in uh, Hollyhead in North Wales, uh, which is where I'm speaking to you from now. Um, went to school in Liverpool, then went down to University College London to read English as a degree. Mm. Uh, nice balance of English language and English literature. That's absolutely critical to my way of thinking. I, I, I insist on that balance between the two domains. And uh, at the end of that, um, started off as a research assistant on Randolph Quirk's big survey of English usage. That was the very first big survey of uh, English grammar uh, including spoken grammar as well as written grammar. Mm. And then as a result of that, got a job in uh, linguistics at uh, the University of Bangor. Uh, this was at a b- the very beginning of the period when linguistics was being taught in Britain, and so nobody knew very much about what it was. So, you know, you learnt the job by teaching it almost. I was there for a couple of years. Then went down to Reading and became uh, eventually Professor of Linguistic Science there. And then in the middle 1980s, uh, I quit the full-time university world because the, oh, the administrative cuts were becoming <laughs> so serious and it was becoming <laughs> crippling. It was almost impossible to write anything because of the way the cuts were going. So I became freelance, or, or as the Japanese say, an independent scholar, and came back up here to Hollyhead to live. And uh, since then, I've been working as a kind of mix of writer, broadcaster, editor, lecturer, a sort of peripatetic guy who wanders about the place, giving talks <laughs> here and there, and in the spare time, write as many books as I can. And that brings you up to the present. Yeah, nice. Well, how many, uh, how many books are you up to um, as we speak? Oh, heck, I've no, no <laughs> idea. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's an impossible question in a way, because 
you know, what counts as a book. Mm. The the um, I, I did a series once with collaborating with a teacher, 30 small books for schools, you know, mm-hmm. 30 pages each. Do they count as books? Well, I suppose they are in a sense, but mm. that's not the same thing as writing a, a big 400-page book, you know. Mm. And then there are things like second editions and third editions. Sometimes they take an awful lot of work, but mm. do they count as separate books or are they the same book? So there are all these problems arriving at a figure. If you go on the ISBNs um, that uh, are assigned to books, I, I guess the figure at the moment is about, I don't know, about 120 or, or wow. something like that. Wow. But, um, but you know, that, that's, that's a lifetime of writing, and, and that's <laughs> yeah. what I do, you know. That, that's my main métier. I consider myself first and foremost as a writer rather than anything else. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Well, the, at the very top, you said that you um, stress the balance between English language and English literature um what's the the difference between the two and why why do you say uh, it's so important to have a a balance of both well literature is the the excellence of language isn't it there there is no uh creativity in language that can be that can go beyond what is possible when we talk about literature Mm -hmm. Uh, and conversely if you're studying literature then language is the medium of expression so I can't conceive of any um, literary uh, approach which doesn't at some point take seriously the the medium of expression Mm -hmm. and I see the two as interdependent therefore two sides of a coin you know you need to study language if you're studying literature you need to study literature if you're studying language Mm-hmm. And that isn't just an academic point, because um, I, I do believe that if you're going to study something, you ought to have a go at it. And so over the years, I mean, uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm known as a, as a linguist and as an English language guy, but I've also done a, quite a lot of creative writing over the years. In fact, my very first piece of published writing was, was a short story when I was a teenager. Yeah. And I've tried to keep that side of things going. You know, I think the best way of trying to understand poetry, for instance, is to write some. It may not be very good. It may not ever become uh, no, you know, known and read by anybody else in the world. But as soon as you try to write a poem, you suddenly get an insight into the constraints, the pressures, the, the, the issues, the choices that have to be made. And then that fuels your analytical side, or at least my analytical side as a, as a linguist. And I begin to understand better the kinds of things that poets do when they write. And the same thing applies to all the other genres of literature. Mm, yeah, fantastic. And the other thing I wanted to, I guess, uh, get you to define was was linguistics and what is a um, what does that entail? All, all I know is is language, but what, I guess what does it what does it mean for someone to to study or teach linguistics? Well, linguistics is the science of of language. In other words, one is trying to uh, analyze language not just in the usual everyday impressionistic way that anybody can do. You know, we all speak a language and therefore or more than one and and therefore we all have opinions about it and we feelings about it and we can make various observations about it and so on. No, this is a systematic, comprehensive, objective analysis of what is going on Mm. when people use language. And it includes absolutely everything, not just everyday usage but uh, questions like how do children uh, acquire language what goes on in the brain when we use language what goes on when language breaks down and and somebody has for example a a stroke and loses their language what is actually going on in these circumstances Uh and then language implies of course languages and so one of the big things about linguistics is that it is a general subject 
I know it's possible to specialize in it. I mean, I specialize in the English language. But at various times over the years, um, I found myself studying other languages. Um, I have a second language myself in the form of Welsh. Um, and I've learned other languages in school, as most people have, and tried to use them in various places. But linguistics goes beyond that personal kind of language learning. It commits you to studying, in theory, all the languages of the world, all mm. 6,000 plus of them, wherever they might be, and what is happening to them. Uh, not only the, the healthy languages, uh, which are developing, you know, multi-millions of speakers, but in particular, the endangered languages. And heck, in Australia, you know more than anywhere else, probably, the, the problem of endangered Aboriginal languages. And mm. these have to be studied as well. And, and so linguistics is a very, very broad-based subject, which tries to exclude nothing and to understand the principles that underlie the development of language as a as a human condition. What is it that all languages have got in common? What is it that differentiates one language from another? And all those issues which provide the fascination for linguistic science. Fantastic. Well, I must admit that it was never something I'd really uh, cared to think too much about. But um, reading your um, some of your books I've been reading through recently and watching some of your your videos and uh, other interviews you've done, uh, you can tell there's a, um, a deep, deep fascination there and it, it definitely rubs off on um, in, in your writing that you can tell there's fascination and it's almost, uh, I was getting, getting a bit worked up. Some of these, uh, especially the uh, um, English in 100 words uh, is what I've got in front of me at the moment and seeing all the, how everything all ties together. I guess, uh, when did you realize you were, um, had this deep fascination with, with language and the, and the science of language? Well, my mum told me that I was about three uh, at the time when this happened. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I, I grew up in, as I mentioned before, in Hollyhead in North Wales, which is a bilingual area. Mm -hmm. But ho at home, we were just English speakers. On the street, however, something like, I guess, half or more of the population uh, spoke Welsh. Mm -hmm. And I remember being curious, puzzled. Why is it that I could understand that person, but I could not understand that person? And I must have gone home and said to my mum, what's going on? And she said, well, that's because, David, you see, they're speaking a language called Welsh and, and so on and so forth. Mm. And this intrigued me. And I started learning Welsh as quickly as I could, therefore, you know, street Welsh, I mean, picking it up here and there. Um, and then went to school and uh, learned a bit more about the language there. And at the time also learned Latin because I, I served mass at the local church and, and that those days Latin was the, the language of the mass. And so I picked up some Latin without really understanding what it was all about. And then in secondary school, I learned French and uh, Greek and, and proper Latin, you know, mm -hmm. really full Latin and even a bit of German. And so I had a very good multilingual experience as I was growing up as a, as a youngster. And all I remember now is that when I was choosing A-levels, the advanced level examinations, uh, I wanted to do um, in language and literature, but there wasn't any language course, and I was very disappointed about that. But I, then I thought, well, I could find a university where you get this balance between the two, between languages on the one hand and English, Lang and Lit on the other. Mm. And that course I mentioned at University College was perfect from this point of view because they taught me Gothic, and Old Norse, and I, you know, all the languages that were related to Old English um, in its earliest conception. Mm. And, and this was uh, heaven and earth as far as I was concerned. 
And so it was a kind of gradual evolutionary process. Um, Linguistics as a subject didn't really exist. I mean, it did in the sense of textbooks and so on, but not at degree level. And so when I found myself in a uh, department which wanted to put on the first full undergraduate degree in linguistics, uh, this was the ideal opportunity to explore that kind of subject in in greater depth, really. Mm, Fantastic. And how do you find all this... All this uh, stuff, where do you get all this uh, information? Like some of your books go back to the history, you know, hundreds and, and thousands of years ago. How do you know what language was like um, back then? Well, there are two sides to um, the fascination of language, I suppose. Uh, and they, they both come down to the fact that language changes. Mm. You know, almost to go back to your previous question in a way, you know, why study language? Because not just because it's there, but because it's there and always changing. Whatever English was like today, it was different yesterday, it will be different tomorrow. Mm. Um, and the same applies to all all languages. Nothing stays the same. And this, for me, is the best bit. You know, this is the, this is the fascinating bit. What on earth is going to happen next? Uh-huh. And then as a consequence of that, you look back over time and say, well, uh, you know, what happened before and how can we find out about it? And so there are really two sides to the subject and two sides to my interest in the subject. One is the contemporary language and what's happening now and where is it going. And then the other one is uh, how did it start, where did it come from and and how has it been? And uh, depending upon the questions I get asked and the opportunities that arise, so I sometimes find myself studying the, the modern language and its implications and sometimes studying... The, the older states of the language and their implications. And so the book you mentioned about the story of English in 100 words was an attempt really to bring those two sides of things together, mm. to talk about uh, the history of the language, to find 100 words that represent the different strands in the lexical history of the English language and to show that those strands are still alive and well and, and generating more lexicon today. Yeah, nice. And I'm keen to dig into... Um the story of English in a hundred words, uh, actually, in a, a few of the specific words. But um, one thing that you just said there that uh, that piqued my interest was you said, you know, what what happens next? It's a, the language is always changing and evolving, and and the you've got the curiosity of where it goes next. Is it is there any way of knowing, or is it just every new technology comes along, makes it slightly different, or um, how can you start to think about what's coming next? Yeah, absolutely. You've no way of knowing. The most dangerous thing in the world is to try and predict the future <laughs> in relation to language. I mean, for example, a thousand years ago, who would ever have predicted that Latin, the universal language of education, would in a thousand years' time be used by nobody, really, mm. uh, apart from you know small groups here and there for particular religious and other purposes? Um, and so in a thousand years time uh, what what will happen to English or any other language I mean we have no idea Mm. Uh, I mean for all I know we might all be speaking Martian by then if Mm. they land Um, so uh, you can you can what you can do is you can look at the trends that are taking place at the moment and and make a judicious um, judgment about about whether they're likely to continue but these are very specific things Um, they're partly related to technology, as you mentioned, but that's an unpredictable domain, isn't it? I mean, what's mm. going to happen to technology next year? Mm, uh, exactly. You know, there's always a risk of being out of date with technology. But th- things like you know, grammatical trends, for instance, that started 100 years ago but are still going on. I'll give you an example. You know, mm. the, you know, in, in, in English, we have two ways of forming the present tense. I can say, I go and I am going. 
And uh, over the last hundred years or so, the use of the progressive, the uh, I'm going form, has gradually become more and more used in relation to verbs that didn't used to take it. So a hundred years ago, people would have said, I know the answer to the question, and I, I think I know, and I remember what he said. Not, I am knowing the answer to the question. I am thinking, I, know, I am remembering, he said. But over the last 50 years, we've seen those verbs slowly uh, take on the other pattern. So you actually, the, today, you can hear people saying, you know, I'm thinking about that. Um, and I'm having a meeting with John, not I have a meeting with John next Tuesday. I'm having. And of course, the most famous example of all, the McDonald's slogan, you see, I'm loving it, uh, which 50 years ago would have been, I love it, but mm. I'm loving it now. There's a, there's a trend <laughs> taking place here. And, and this will continue, you see. So although it hasn't applied to all verbs yet in all circumstances, I would say that in you know the next generation, we'll see that trend carry on and become more general. So that's the kind of prediction you can make, very specific predictions about particular points. Mm -hmm. That is fascinating. <laughs> it's it's um it's wild and so back back to the uh, the hundred words. So as you said, it takes you through back from the the fifth century all the way through to the twenty first century, and and you've picked out all these hundred words. How did you pick out these hundred words? <laughs> That's <that's tricky. laughs> the the, uh, the the concept. Um, it wasn't mine. The concept was Neil McGregor's History of the World in a Hundred Objects. Uh -huh. Neil McGregor was the director of the British Museum, and he did a radio series which turned into a very successful book in which he, basically he said, look at everything that's in the British Museum. I bet I could find 100 different objects, each one of which tells one fragment of the history of the human race. Put them all together, and you'll get a kind of bird's eye view of how the human race evolved. And you thought, you'll never be able to do that. Uh, <laughs> and of course he did, and did it brilliantly, and it's a lovely, lovely book. And then the publisher said to me, um, uh, Andrew Franklin, that profile book, said, uh, uh, I bet you couldn't do that for language, for a English language. And I said, no, it's not, it's not possible. Um, and he said, no, I didn't think it was, didn't think it was. And of course, as soon as somebody gives you a challenge like that, <laughs> you think, well, maybe it is possible. And, of course, it is possible. Mm. What you do is you try to find a word that represents a strand in the history of the language. Mm. So, for instance, we all know that lots of French words came into English over the last thousand years. So you choose one of those words as a kind of um, way in to talking a little bit about the history of the impact of French on English. Mm -hmm. Or to take another example, uh, there were Old Norse words that came in in Anglo-Saxon times. So again, you choose one and you, you, you develop that. Mm. So one side of it is, is looking at the influences on the English language over the years. Um, Australian words, you know, that have come into English and, and New Zealand words and all that. You know, it's all, it's all part of that, that general theme. And then the other thing is you look at the different is kinds of issue that have affected the language. For instance, you choose a word that represents the grammatical strand in the history of English. I chose the word and uh, mm. as an illustration of that, which is an everyday word, but lots of lovely stories behind the use of, of the word and and why we should use it and so on. And... Uh, and then spelling is a very important aspect of English. As everybody knows who's tried to learn English, you've had to learn to spell the flaming thing, and it's not easy. 
so why is that? What, what is it about the spelling system? Where did, where did the complication come from? So I choose a word that represents the history of spelling. And then um, you go on like that, in, in other words. You try and find as many different angles on the vocabulary. All the rude words in English, for instance, they mustn't be forgotten <laughs> either. You've got to have some rude words in there, yeah, uh, because words are a very important part of, uh, of, of expression. And then I topped and tailed it, tailed it by finding the, the first recorded word, written word in the history of English, which is an old runic word that came in in the 5th century. And I ended it by looking at the contemporary trend in vocabulary. The, it's not possible to find the latest word in English because that's out oh, of date as soon as it sure. arrives. But certainly the latest trend in vocabulary, which, as you mentioned earlier, was, of course, the Internet. Mm. And so I end the, uh, the, the book with some discussion of what's going on in Twitter and, uh, and all the, uh, you know, the new technologies that are out there. Fantastic. Was the, um, the, did, when did English start, I guess? Well, in, when the Anglo-Saxons arrived, really, mm. 449 AD, three boats come from the continent, invited in to help uh, fight against the marauding Picts and Scots that were beating everybody up. Uh, and then they took over, uh, mm. essentially. Um, so we're talking about the 5th century. But English as a language doesn't get written down until a couple of centuries later. So the earliest evidence we have of Old English as such, apart from a few inscriptions that turn up earlier, um, such as the runic one that I mentioned, uh, mm. don't come along until about the 7th century. Mm. And then Old English builds up as a, um, as a cluster of... Uh, manuscripts of various kinds, some to do with uh, historical documents, legal issues, wills, charters, that sort of thing. And then a very large, though we don't have much of it surviving, a literary uh, tradition, lots of poetry, the famous poem Beowulf, for instance, and uh, all sorts of um, applications of language and literature in different genres which produce a corpus called Old English which lasted from about the 7th century until the 11th century mm. and then we're into Middle English uh, the language of Chaucer and, and many others which take us to about the 15th century and then we're into Early Modern English Shakespeare and others which takes us into almost living memory well at least you know the 18th early 19th century and then we're into Modern English as we have it today mm. Fantastic. I um, I was amazed to see uh, some of these words, I guess, how late um, they came in. And uh, I was being a, you know, a bit of a, I like some of the rude words as well. They were interesting. <laughs> I like to, I like to read some of those. Um, but yeah, so I found like, say, uh, the word what uh, was what the 10th century. So that's sort of, you know, 500 years after um, yeah, well, that, that's right. That's right. It's uh, it, you, there are lots of surprises. I mean, every word in the language has a story behind it, mm. and there's always a surprising story. People often ask me, you know, what's your favourite word? Well, that's an unanswerable question. <laughs> the the favourite word is the word I happen to be studying at the moment, and mm. and every word has this fascinating history. Um, you know, all the rude words, for, for instance, they're, they're, they're lovely because once upon a time they weren't rude words, you see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the, the rudeness develops o over time. But <laughs> the, f the funny, of course, because they're rude now, uh, the funny thing, I had to do an audio book of this uh, at one point. <laughs> 
and the, the three chapters uh, which deal with the three types of taboo word, I had to, to, to read these, of course, very seriously and very straight-facedly, and it sounded <laughs> very, very weird. <laughs> um, yeah, that's too funny. Um, I like the... Uh, I must admit that when you were first telling your story and you said the academic cuts, um, I thought you had an extra... Um, uh, an extra letter in there when you were talking about it, but that's word number twenty-four, uh, one of the yeah, taboo words. Yes. Uh, yes. And <laughs> that's right, and, and the one that whenever I used to do uh, interviews about this on the radio, uh, the uh, producer would say, "David, we're, we're going to talk about your book, but you won't mention chapter twenty-four, will you?" <laughs> well, I, I think we're we're lucky in that it's a, a podcast. We are less um, bound by uh, big corporations or control over the. The media, I guess, I'll just make this explicit. But you said, uh, you know, some of these words um, that have a, a special a group, the, the single letter words, the, the F word, the C word, the N word, um, where they're, they're, I guess, so taboo that uh, one letter uh, and everyone knows what you're talking about. Yes, that's right. The, the, the C word is a perfectly good case in, case in point. Um, I mean, if I'm allowed to say cunt out loud, You're allowed uh, to say cunt, yes. I will say it. I mean, I'm a linguist. I, it doesn't bother me at all. The important point about rude words is that they shouldn't be used in contexts where they're likely to upset and, and offend. Because, uh-huh. you know, one wants to be a nice person, not a nasty person. Conversely, mm. if you want to be a nasty person and offend somebody, that's the word you'll use. Mm. But it's a very good case in point, because when you go back to the Middle Ages and you look at the way... Uh, the word was used, it was actually used in a perfectly neutral, routine way as a way of describing a part of the female body. And so you'll you'll see it turning up in medical textbooks, for example, as a technical term, Mm. almost, of anatomy, you know. Mm. And it only developed its rudeness much later. And that's one of the fascinating things about rude words, is that they come and go. And Mm. some words, once upon a time, were felt to be ferocious. I mean, the word bloody, for instance, Mm. in Victorian England, was felt to be horrendous, as powerful a word as, say, cunt is today. Mm. Um, and, and if everybody used it in public, it might make headlines. And then, slowly, it lost its force, especially in Australia, uh, where it became absolutely routine very, very quickly, and then later in other parts of the English-speaking world. So today, if you say bloody this or bloody that, almost people hardly ever notice, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Most, most formal of circumstances. But on the other hand, some of those words have been replaced by new powerful uh, taboo words and then the racist ones, I suppose, you know, mm. like the N word. You know, you would hardly ever these days hear a word like nigger mm. being used in public. Simply, it has taken on all the powerful associations that a word like cunt once used to have. Mm. And so these days watching the television after the watershed in this country, I might occasionally hear the C word being used late at night in some drama or other, but I doubt if I'd hear the N word. I'd be very surprised. Mm. Is that um, something that might uh, <clears throat> might drop off over time, or do you think that's still yeah. something? That, yeah, sure. It's it's got to be re- reclaimed, and, and mm. an awful lot of people do uh, use it proudly mm. um, and try to reclaim it. Mm. Uh, this is a, a bit of the unpredictable future, you know. You never know whether a particular um, taboo word, uh, once it gets through its politically correct phase, as it were, and people realise that it actually had a value and they want to resuscitate that value. And, mm. and so it might happen that in due course uh, th- that word will uh, become more positive once again. But then it will be replaced by others because a, a culture 
needs its taboo words. You know, there has to be something that people um, uh, mm. uh, look at as being beyond the pale, as it were, uh, mm. where you can be really dangerous with language. A culture seems to need that. Oh, fantastic. I'm really uh, intrigued by that. So it's not, I guess the words are at different points throughout history will have different impacts, as, but it's, as you say, especially as a linguist, the, the word itself is, is not offensive, more just the, the context uh, in which it's used. Um, yes, and, and bearing in mind, as you say, the, the importance of language change. So if you go back to Shakespeare's time, for instance, um, any word that was redolent of uh, religious connotations, for instance, uh, you know, religious swearing of one kind and another, um, would be considered extremely powerful, extremely strong, and indeed, mm. at one point, uh, were, 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 these words were cut out of um, one of the printed versions of, of Shakespeare. They were felt to be so powerful. Mm. Today, people use an awful lot of religious expressions without them having any religious content in them at all. You know, people who, who don't believe in God at all might say, oh my God, mm. you know, it no longer has that kind of um, force that it used to have. Mm, for sure. I liked uh, number uh, 69, Meepla, uh, Pigeon English. I, I lived in Papua New Guinea for a, a couple of years, so um, so found, a, a, I guess, a, 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 different, a different sort of English, the Pigeon English. Um, yeah, and an important strand, a very important strand in the history of English. I mean, I don't know exactly how many pidgin languages and creole languages based upon English there are around the world. At least 60 or 70 spoken by hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, um, not just in the Caribbean and in um, you know, Papua New Guinea, but in West Africa and, and all over the place, really. It doesn't take much for a contact language to develop and a new kind of English to grow. So you have to have a chapter in there, at least one chapter, uh, representing that trend in the history of English, yes. Mm. Yeah, nice. And as we, uh, as we said, so the, the book then moves through to um, more new words, things like uh, lol, lol, uh, chillax, unfriend, um, yeah. things like that. Uh, and again, some things that I wouldn't have thought were so new, like uh, mega as a prefix, M-E-G-A, um, which was, you said, not till the 20th century. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's been there a while, but these fashions that come are, again, very, very unpredictable. Um, once again, the, 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 the choice is there not just because the word is new, but because the word represents a kind of trend mm. of which there are many other examples, you know, a certain type of prefixation, for instance. Yes putting prefixes in a certain type of addition of suffixes and things like that. So uh, it's more than just the word. It's the, it's the cluster of words that that word represents, which is what I was trying to get at. Mm. It's a, um, how, I guess, how, how long did this take to, to, to bring together, to pick everything out and, and, and find it all and bring it all together into, into um, a succinct hundred words? Well, it uh, the book as a whole took about nine months, um, and it, it had a curious pattern. You know, when you write a book, or at least when I write a book, it's pretty even, really. You know, say there are 20 chapters. Uh, I know that each chapter is going to take roughly the same amount of time, um, and the book will, I hope, be finished in a certain period of time. You know, was, chapter 18 is not going to be any more difficult than chapter 3, if you follow me. Mm. Uh, but with this book, it was totally different. Mm. It was a very easy book to start writing because when you say a hundred words okay i'll start with the first word that came <laughs> into me. Good, that's quick yeah. then 
then the most recent ones, that's easy. And then I go through the most obvious categories. Yeah. And so it, it took no time at all to write the first 20 chapters. And then you start scratching your head and thinking, now, hang on, I, I've got another 80 to go. And, and it slows <laughs> down um, as you try and find good <laughs> examples to represent trends in the language. And so uh, it had a very fast start. Uh, and a very slow finish. And uh, there was one point where I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm never, I'm never going to finish this, you know. Uh, but, I, but I did in the end. And then you know what the publisher said uh, after I'd, uh, I'd done my hundred. He said, um, David. He said, you know, this concept of a hundred something. It's a bit of a cliche in publishing. <laughs> Uh, you know, a hundred this and a hundred that. Maybe it should be a hundred and one. I said, no way. You know, that is it. A hundred you've got, and that's when I'm stopping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too funny. Too funny. I love it. Well, that's, uh, that's only one, one book that we've sort of delved a little bit into. You said there was 120 others um, or so. Um, but I, I've been uh, fascinated by the conversation, reading it, um, some of your books in in, in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, I guess what's what's next? Um, where to now? What's uh, what are the other projects you got on the on the go at the moment? Well, the um, the ones that are currently going through press right as as we speak. Uh, one is a uh, a book on a on a character on a poet that most people have not heard of, um, a man called John Bradburn. Uh, John Bradburn was a missionary poet who lost his life in Zimbabwe back in the 1970s. And to cut a long story short, his um, uh, the place where he worked has become a, a, a local shrine. Um, and he's considered in the Roman Catholic tradition a, a martyr. And his cause for beatification is likely to develop in the near future. Anyway, that's his background. Um, and uh, the interest from my point of view is that he turns out to have been the most prolific poet that the English language has ever had. Mm. Uh, completely neglected. Nobody knows about it. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, I've, I've never heard of him. <laughs> no, most people won't. Uh, I've spent the last um, oh, 10 or 12 years, more, 15 years, um, co collating all the poetry online. So it's all there online now at johnbradburnpoems.com. Mm -hmm. And um, when I say he's the most prolific poet, you know, how do you measure poetry? Well, uh, Wordsworth wrote about 50,000 lines of poetry. Um, Shakespeare wrote about 90,000 lines of poetry. Um, Bradburn wrote 170,000 lines of poetry. Wow. And so, as soon as you mention a figure like that, people say, what? How can anybody write so many poems? And moreover, in more or less in a 10 or 15 year period while he was working with the lepers in Zimbabwe. Uh, and is it any good? Um, and... I thought, well, that question needs an answer. And so, <laughs> so this book, which is quite a large book, is, is a kind of literary critical and stylistic uh, analysis of the poetry and the thought that lies behind it to try and answer that question. And the answer is, yes, it is good most of the time. I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's, it's, it's very poor, but it's, it's doggerel. At other times, it's fantastic. And, and any literary critic, and there have been a few now who have looked at John Bradburn, have said his best poetry is as good as, and then they will quote people like Gerald Manley Hopkins and George Herbert and others that write in the devotional um, tradition of English literature. And so that, that's the book I've been working on, and it'll be uh, coming out, oh, you know, Couple of months, couple of months time. Mm -hmm. It's it's a it's a niche book, so I'm publishing it via my website. Uh -huh. um, 
yeah, that's what I do these days. Uh, you know, uh, quite a few of my books are out of print now, and people still ask for them. Well, no publisher is going to reprint an out-of-print book, really, from years ago. And so I, I, I republish my out-of-print books on my website uh-huh. and then I produce a book that no publisher is likely to want because it's such an obscure topic <laughs> like this one. Um, I publish that on the website as well. Yeah, fantastic. And, and I, it, it's a, this kind of print-on-demand publishing is, is, a, is amazing. Mm. Um, these it's the things you can do and the peop- the readership you can reach, which a conventional publisher would not be able to reach simply by putting stuff out on the web, mm. is just remarkable. Mm. As you say, something so, like this is uh, the, the the poetry book. As you say, it's uh, very niche, but I'm sure the, the people who are interested in it are, are extremely interested in it and uh, they probably wouldn't find it at a bookshop, but to be able to find it... Um, Online and through a print yeah, on demand exactly. sort of setup, yeah. either as either as print on demand or as or as an ebook. Mm. Um, it's great. And Hilary, my wife, who writes children's novels, again, you know, it's very difficult to get published uh, in in that genre. But mm. uh, we put her stuff out on the web as well that way, and it's a it's a great way of if you're a creative person and you want your stuff, you you write because you have to write. Um, mm. Not because you want to become rich or anything, mm. uh, and they want people to read it, obviously. And the web is a brilliant way of doing this. In conventional terms, um, my next published book in the, uh, in the in the sort of public domain is coming out in October, uh, published by the Bodleian um, Publishing com- Company, the Bodleian Library in in Oxford, and it's a book called uh, "We Are Not Amused," and it's. Uh, uh, Victorian views on pronunciation as told in the pages of Punch magazine. <laughs> so so it's, a, it's a look back at 100 years ago to see how people talked about pronunciation, their attitudes, you know how everybody criticizes accents and says mm. these sounds are ugly or these sounds are pretty and so on. Well, was that going on in Victorian times? Yes, it was. And uh, the attitudes then are very similar to the attitudes today. So it's a sort of historical... Uh, Slight light-hearted look back at all the cartoons and the satirical articles on pronunciation that were being used in those days. Nice, nice. And another uh, another fascinating book. So, whereabouts can people find you and find your books and find more about what you're doing and what's coming up? Well, there's a one-stop shop. I mean, everything I do is uh, focused on the website, which is www.davidcrystal.com. Um, that's where uh, I have a complete listing of all the books and all the articles uh, uh, ever since the year dot, insofar as I've got them all. I haven't actually got all of them. Um, <laughs> it's true, you know, you write an article in 19-whatever, 63, and I don't have it anymore. Yeah, for sure. But any article that I did have is scanned and available free, downloadable, um, for anybody who wants to read one of these things. And it's a uh, it's where you find information about all the books that I was telling you about a few seconds ago, and we have a, a public events page there. You know, if I'm giving a public talk here or there, we we list the events there, and there's a bio, and you know, all the things you'd expect to have on a, on a website, and a contact form so that people can get in touch if they want to raise some sort of issue. So the website is the uh, is the main place. Fantastic, davidcrystal.com. That's it. Easy, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, and uh, as I said, the, the fascinating um, take on language and linguistics. Uh, was there anything you want to leave us with? Uh, no, other, other than I, I hope um, 
pe people will continue to develop this interest in language that I think is deep within any of us uh, in, in a nicely informed general linguistic -y sort of way become increasingly tolerant about uh, varieties in usage that are developing around the world um, and become increasingly concerned about the what is really actually a language crisis uh, that's affecting the languages of the world at the moment um, you know something like half the languages of the world are so seriously endangered that they're likely to die really? out in the course of the present century wow. well you know this very well in Australia mm. because of the history of Aboriginal languages that pattern is around the world um, you know, but it's a language dying somewhere in the world every three months or so on average. And this is a, a, a major source of concern. So there are lots of organizations around the world that are trying to do their best to document these dying languages um, before they disappear, mm. uh, to help vitalize languages. And that all costs a bit of money. And so um, there are places where people can support these kinds of ventures if they wish. And then the other big thing that I, I hope will happen, it hasn't happened yet, is that I hope we will see the development of um, what you might call houses of language. Mm. In other words, if you're interested in natural history, you go to a natural history museum. If you're interested in science, you go to a science museum. If you're interested in language, you go to a what? Well, there isn't anything. Mm. Um, language museum uh, or a language gallery or a language a house of languages a place in other words where the lang where language and the languages of the world are celebrated and where you can wander around and listen to them and see them in their alphabetical ver variations and all this sort of thing um, th th there is none in really uh, uh, plenty of ideas there was one suggested for Britain one suggested for Catalonia um, one suggested mm -hmm. for Berlin there's an idea developing in Washington at the moment in Iceland there is a, 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 a house that's developed quite well but in most countries there's nothing so I hope that some people listening to this might say to themselves hey you know we need to have one in <laughs> Melbourne or Sydney or Perth or anywhere really um, and uh, develop the concept of houses of language, and I hope this happens in other countries too. Fantastic! That sounds um, sounds awesome, and yeah, hopefully someone someone takes up the challenge. Well, you never know. <laughs> Love it, David. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, it's been amazing. It's been a real pleasure, Adam. Thanks for all the <laughs> questions, all the interest. to the Publisher Book Podcast. We hope you learned something along the way. For more interviews with authors from around the world, subscribe to the podcast or visit publisherbookpodcast.com.